You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. You don't have to be a machine learning engineer to help make the future a smarter place. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas. Eric, we've come to the end of 2019, which means well, end of a decade. Yeah, the decade. That's the big one. I'm actually going out on New Year's Eve this year. Oh, really? Yeah. You got a babysitter. Congratulations. No, we're actually taking both the kids both to the this kids. Uh, Funplex place. Oof. <laughs> Crazy. Fun, fun, Party time. Your own words. Fun family <laughs> vacation. Yeah, you can only have two of those three. I love that. Yeah, that's pretty good. I love good. that. Yeah. Okay, so uh, market's up at the end of the year. Market's way up for the decade, but we don't want to look back so much on this episode as look forward. Yeah, a lot's happened this year. A lot of unexpected things, some expected things, um, and it's a good time to take stock of that. But also look forward to what uh, you know. Some of the smartest people who cover the industry are thinking about, looking for, and um, getting ready for. So joining us on this episode, couple regulars: Rachel Evans of Bloomberg News and Todd Rosenbluth with CFRA, where he's the director of Mutual and Exchange Traded Fund Research. I, how many times have you been on the show, Todd? This is my fourth, I think, fourth or fifth time. I think you get a jacket when you hit the five-timers club or something. That's like right. Saturday Next Night year. Live. Next year. Yeah. Okay. You and you Rachel might... might be neck and neck for most appearances. I think Rachel has you beat. Yeah. We'll yeah, have to do an autopsy. I think, I'm, I think I'm ahead of the game there. Rachel, okay, count. let's go count 80s. Count. You wanted 80s? Here you go. I did. Rachel is Paul Simon. Ooh, yes. he, that was the yes, first five-timer on, on SNL. On yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Remember on SNL, Tom Hanks, was he became the second. Or Steve Martin might have been the second. So maybe you're the Steve Martin, but she's the first. Thank you very much. Welcome to be here. This time on Trillions, the year ahead in the ETFs. Okay, we've got a bunch of topics we want to run through. We want to start with flows. Winners, losers. Year, decade. This kind of looks backwards more than forwards, Eric. I, I mean, we sure we want to do this? Yeah, I mean, you have to look back to get uh, a ground of where you're going. I'll just throw some numbers out, and then you guys tell me what you, what you thought. I mean, obviously, fixed income punched way above its weight. Why? Rates fell. I mean, fixed income definitely takes some money anyway, but rates falling is huge because it means bond prices go up. So that's a big boost for fixed income. Equity had a slow start, but it's coming back as Todd is you know sweating because we have a bet. Um, equity uh, holding its own, and I think also uh, international. Uh, probably had an underwhelming year, but is had a little late run. But overall, I think international was probably the weak spot uh, among all the asset classes. Todd, what stood out to you? Well, I think just to give Eric credit for giving us the compliment for choosing fixed income, fixed income ETFs have more money going in for the first time in a decade. As Eric mentioned, it's a small part. It's 20% of the pie. As we're doing this now, there's about a $14 billion lead for fixed income ETFs. That doesn't happen in an environment when the equity markets are up more than 20%. And yes, Eric and I have a bet on this. I brought my chopsticks to be able to commemorate the fact that we're in the fixed income camp right now. Why uh, chopsticks? Look, we have a sushi lunch bet, okay? I'm going to get the salmon lover special with a, a dessert of uh, green tea ice cream. And then you're going to pay for my part In as this well. case, yes, I will. <laughs> I, might even, I might even splurge on some sake. I don't know. We'll see. Whew, uh, 1950s style. Yeah, yeah. seriously. Um, but Take the afternoon he, here's off. What Todd, here's what Todd is sweating about that he will not mention is 
Right now, fixed income has a $14 billion lead on equities. But equity- This is for on, inflow this year. Yes. On average, equities take in $35 billion more than fixed, fixed income each December. So you do the math. So I'll do the math, and at some point we'll move and bring Rachel into this conversation. But <laughs> no, I'm enjoying watching the but, fight. <laughs> but let's just put it in perspective. Equity versus fixed income flows has been two to one for the last five years. This is rare, and it's something we should be celebrating. And even if, and I think fixed income will still be ahead, even if equity does what it typically does, that's still reason to celebrate. Fixed income ETFs, as we look into 2020, are going to remain uh, a key part of the portfolio. Look at and I think we're going to have another hedging. record year in 2020, the way that we had in 2019. But I think that's a good point. Like, I mean, if we're looking at the, the next uh, couple of years, the next decade even, I think this is kind of like sort of fixed income sort of coming of age moment. You know, we haven't seen it kind of taking in the big flows. And sure, you know, the rate outlook definitely kind of has a role in exactly where we're seeing flows going this year. But just in terms of how people are using fixed income ETFs, the use of fixed income ETFs has really broadened over the last 18 months, two years. You're seeing people using a sort of bond ETFs in ladders uh, as a kind of laddering sort of strategy that previously was uh, looking at sort of single bonds. You're seeing institutions using them. You're seeing hedge funds and other kind of sophisticated traders using for hedging instead of swaps. So I think kind of fixed income ETFs are really sort of going to be the, where the, the growth is in, in the next decade. We've seen an awful lot of kind of equity uh, sort of dominance in kind of the, the previous sort of decades. But I think looking forward, fixed income is... Is certainly an area where we could see some growth. Next topic, returns. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, just the S&P being up 25%. I know it doesn't feel like it, but that is an amazing year. I used to refer to 2017 as utopia. This was even better. It didn't feel like it, but obviously you didn't have to do much. This whole decade was just basically like buy the market. You know, people call it beta. Yeah. So it's been very easy to make money. And of course, there's some high flyers. Uh, Todd, you want to guess what the best performer was over the past 10 years? Was it XBI, the biotech ETF? Oh, yeah. He follows me on Twitter. Shit. Um, no, I did my research. Did before, you? I did my research before <laughs> showing up. Oh, okay. Uh, what? So, Anyone right. here? Hey, man. Hat tip to you. That's right. XBI, <laughs> equal weighted biotech. Biotech's relentless. It's one of those areas that's just defied the high-flying odds. Usually, you high-fly for a year or two, and then you're in the tank the next year. Biotech is very persistent. So, But outside of, of that, you've had some come, people come and go, but mostly it's been a beta, beta decade. Yeah, what I also is interesting, when we looked at this year and then the 10 years, so this year, TAN, which is a solar ETF uh, that Invesco offers. I keep thinking of it as Guggenheim, uh, but it's the Invesco product now, is actually among the worst performers if you look back a decade. So you know, just be careful when you're choosing some of these high flyers and expecting that they're going to continue to perform well. We've seen it with some of them in semiconductors are on the top of both charts, but there's a number of ETFs that, are, that bounce around quite a bit when you get more niche with these industry-oriented ETFs. What other losers stand out? Yeah, the losers for me, I was, I was looking at this morning. At the moment, at this point in the year, MJ is one of the worst performers of the year, which is really, really interesting. Marijuana is like such a kind of growth industry, and it almost is kind of like sort of, you'd think it might be more correlated with biotech, just sort of given that a lot of it is sort of related kind of like health and medical kind of innovations. But MJ has been doing very badly um, this year, and it would actually be a second year of losses. So cannabis, it may be kind of a long-term trend. There may be kind of a long-term investment story there. But this year and, and last year, it really hasn't been the case. And one interesting thing about cannabis, though, despite that, you know, really rough, I think it's not 35% or something. It's around there, yeah. Um, it's pretty much retained a good amount of it. It hasn't really seen much outflows. Right. This is a good sign, and it's also just remarkable. Normally, when you have these high flyers, the money sort of follows the performance. But here it's, it's sticky. Ha! <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, no, I nobody. Okay, yeah. all right. 
All right, we'll 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 let we'll we'll let that slide. Yeah, you can, you can't talk about cannabis ETFs without a pun jumping in that way too, too quickly. Easy. It was too easy. Well, I I will say I do think some people forgot they bought it. I mean, and I'm not I'm kidding, but I'm not kidding. I also think that it's an area that people are in for long term. But I that's kind of interesting. Uh, another area that I thought was interesting that um, symbolized the comeback from t- 2008 is uh, home builders ITB. It just uh, like a month ago passed its 2007 high point. So it made this huge, huge trip down, like the Grand Canyon. It's finally come back up. So home builders kind of like closed the, the gap on that story of the financial crisis. And it, well, it's, the other strong performer, the other peer in that group is XHB, and it's a thousand basis point difference between ITB and XHB. So two similar sounding ETFs. They're both working out. You would have still made a lot of money if you held those products. But a big difference because the exposure between those products are different, as we've talked about on prior Trillions podcasts that I've been on. You love that. But I thought we were supposed to just pick on the cheapest ETF. Isn't that the rule? Yeah, you're asking me that. Yeah, yeah. We at CFRA would certainly disagree with, with going against the cheapest or the largest ETF and focusing on looking what's inside the portfolio. Yeah, actually, you want to get uh, Todd's grade on panels, but the way to get him started is just to say, talk about everybody going to the cheapest ETFs. Well, and we can do that, uh, and we can certainly. I think we have on the plan to talk about actively managed ETFs and whether or not they're going to be a star in the next decade. Next topic. Let's talk about the league table for a second. So the league table, we're looking at kind of who's taken in the most flows um, this year, and there aren't really any great surprises at the top. You know, BlackRock is still kind of dominant, followed by Vanguard. Mm-hmm. But the one that really stood out to me actually is a little bit lower down um, in this in the table, which is DWS, which is Deutsche Bank's uh, newly rebranded or not that newly rebranded asset management uh, unit. They are poised to snap three years of outflows. So they have been really struggling over the last few years because so much of their assets were in um, FX hedge products, and that stopped really kind of being something attractive in 2015 or so. This year, they are looking to actually take in inflows. And that seems to be mostly uh, attributable to HYLB, which is a high yield ETF that's pretty cheap and that they launched with kind of quite a, a bit of a plum a few years back. And also USSG, which is an ESG product. So they've really been riding those two funds to actually coming back to having uh, inflows for, for the first time in three years. Todd, league table, yeah, what I jumps mean, out at you? Well, they're a bright spot. I mean, so uh, two ends of the spectrum. Schwab, uh, which, as everybody on, in this room and probably listening knows, made an acquisition recently of TD Ameritrade. Schwab is not approved yet, but not approved, yeah. uh, and so we probably won't we won't see the impact from a flow standpoint until late 2020. Uh, but they are the number three provider in terms of flows this year. Uh, they're the fifth largest provider. It's just a sign that low cost products continue to resonate. And then Goldman Sachs uh, is a top ten. Flows perspective, them catching up with what JP Morgan has done. Uh, and Goldman is doing this even without having their low cost suite of ETFs that are in the hopper that are going to come out in 2020. And they've got some uh, advisory parts of the business that'll likely do well. So uh, we've seen money going into GSLC, we've seen it going into some of their bond products as well. And I think they're a player to watch in, in the next decade. Um, yeah. And, you know, I kind of divide the ETF issuers into two camps. Was it early guys? You know, like, so you got. Uh, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, they take in almost like all, like 80% of the money, right? Then you've got the Wall Street banks, which were sort of like the freshmen maybe six years ago, Goldman, JP Morgan, Deutsche Bank. They do very well. They're, they do better than some of these buy-side firms that have come in, um, like a Leg Mason or an Oppenheimer before they got acquired or a Hartford. They do, those guys get maybe four, you know, three or four billion. But the Wall Street banks have been very good about seeing the writing on the wall and sort of being their own little vanguards in certain ways, in particular J.P. Morgan. 
So I think most issuers now realize you have to have some line of dirt cheap products to just get in the door, get your call answered, get advisor's interest. And then you try to maybe sprinkle in some of the more expensive exotic stuff. And they have quickly followed that template, which is basically the Vanguard iShares template, and it's working. So as you go down, you're going to see, I think the next decade, I think a JP Morgan, Goldman, um, you're going to see a lot of vertical integration, uh, you know, Fidelity, JP Morgan, Goldman, Vanguard, Schwab. And these guys are going to have the platforms and the advisors also that's just going to suck in money to their own ETFs. And so I don't see anything changing big, getting bigger. Um, and but, a lot of the uh, issuers uh, sort of, you know, B, you know, BYOA to an extent, you know, bring your own assets uh, using their other arms to just pull flows into their own funds. Okay, next topic, because the fee wars are totally over, right? Not even close. <laughs> just not beginning. Even, not even close. So People let's just... declare that all the time. It makes yeah. a nice headline. If yeah. anybody here writes headlines or is connected to headlines, none please us, let me. None of us do that. Please let me know about that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so let's just recap a bit of what happened this year. We had the first zero fee ETFs that came to market from SoFi. We had negative fee ETFs from Salt Financial. Uh, we had J.P. Morgan coming in at two basis points, and to some extent, seeming like a bit of a disappointment because there was a possibility that they might go to zero. We've seen Vanguard bring pricing down. We've seen things coming down. We're only in the middle of it, and I think it's as we mentioned. Goldman is coming out; they're not they're not coming out with low cost ETFs and being at a premium. J.P. Morgan has a uh, an EFA based product that's been filed. If it's going to take share, it has to be seven basis points or less because that's what I EFA is. What is that? What is EFA? EFA. Okay. Developed markets. Yeah, developed markets. So uh, Europe, e- Australia, what's the F? Japan. Far, you know, far, far east, far east. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So you know, developed non-US, <laughs> developed non-US markets. Well, I got stumped on that one. I was ready for like tickers. I wasn't going to be able to be prepared for. It, it is funny. Like you, you can use an acronym so much, and then someone asks you what it stands for. It's possible not to know. But I think I think Todd's right as well. Just in terms of kind of like the fee will continuing. Like I think it's it's going to broaden. You know, we're already seeing it. Um, you know, EFA products potentially, but also high yield. We've seen kind of like big fee cuts. Um, in certain high yield products this year, thematics are starting to kind of like trend not towards zero per se, but they're getting significantly cheaper. There's still a significant number of places where we could see fee cuts that kind of like you know see fee compression sort of happening before we really get to rock bottom. Or oh. or what about below bottom when people continue to pay you. Yeah, I mean we we've already seen the first fund that, seen that, that does that. See it again? Well, it's not gathered assets. That's yeah. the, that's the thing that surprised me. I was expecting we would have seen more money going into these products. Distribution remains a bit of a challenge and a brand name uh, that isn't as well known. Uh, but I don't think we're going I think we're going to see we should see more of these products instead of closing the doors. You should just rebate the fee and hope to get someone in before closing the doors if it doesn't work. And also, I'd argue the fee wars have spread to the commission-free trading. Mm. That was essentially part of the fee war, and it's spreading to advisors. You know, Schwab and Schwab this year announced they're going to be an advisor where they're going to give you a subscription service. It's almost like Netflix, and you add up the math, it's very, very low cost. Um, I, I don't see this really stopping for a long time. I, I would argue that it's uh, almost just beginning. Next, what's the future of Smart Beta? I'm very bullish on Smart Beta. I think Smart Beta is here to stay. It's just about crossed a trillion dollars. And that's that's a trillion dollars the hard way. That's a trillion dollars in the terror dome. You know, after tax, picky, advisor money. Um, and I think, look, pe- not everybody wants to just get the, the index, right? A good group of people who want to outperform. The problem for active managers is they want it cheap 
rules-based and tax-efficient. And that's smart beta. USMV is a great example, the low-vol, minimum-vol ETF from iShares. Uh, what is it, 15 basis points? Right. So it's under that magical 20 basis point figure where most of the flows go. And you get a chance to do something better, maybe a higher sharp ratio. You can talk to your clients about something that's a little more you know, sophisticated. Um, I am very bullish on this. It's just a great deal. The value proposition is there. I think investors have been bullish on it. It's now the third most popular ETF in terms of flows. Having a great year, it's you know, having a great Overall year. Overall ETFs? Uh, what slice of the pie is it now? Smart, smart beta. beta. About 20% of the pie. But that's about where it's been. Well, the pie is continuing. Yeah, but the to, pie is getting pie bigger. Is, to keep yeah. up alone is, is... So a fifth, though. Yeah, I'd say a fifth, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but what, and what we're seeing is this year, we're seeing, even though people shouldn't be buying just on past performance, they will buy based on past performance. And 2019 has been a good year for some of these flagship products. USMV is keeping up with the broader market, lower risk, and yet outperforming some of the multi-factor ETFs. Uh, I mentioned GSLC earlier, uh, but OMFL, which is an Invesco multi-factor product, John Hancock's multi-factor product, JHML on that one is also outperforming. I think if you're going to pay a little bit more than a market cap weighted portfolio, you want to hope that you're going to keep up with a broader benchmark and perhaps even beat it. And that's working out in many cases this year, and that sets up well for, for the future. Yeah, I think it's, it's going to be interesting to sort of see how these products sort of continue to evolve because a lot of sort of the main kind of areas for, for creating products have now been taken. The, the key thing for, from my perspective is to make sure people keep looking under the hood. This should speak to you, to your kind of focus, Todd, on this as well because a, a lot of these smart beta products are very different to one another, yet they sound very similar. You know, we've talked about this in the past, but people's way that they're calculating value from one product to another is quite different. So I think it's just important, you know, these products you know, have those returns and that can be that to, to Eric's shiny object effect that can kind of like lure people people in. But if you, you if you are buying one of these products, you should know exactly how they are calculating the particular factor that you're looking for exposure to. Um, my colleague Athanasios in London did a study on the rolling 12-month return of value ETFs and found that they normally have a 20 to 30% gap in one-year returns, which is still pretty significant. But in 2009, when value came roaring back, there was a 95% gap between the best performing value ETF and the, and the worst. That is astonishing to me. And I have a theory that right now, a lot of the value and smart beta ETFs that get the most money are the ones that look most like the market. They have a lot of beta, a lot low tracking error. I think when there's a sell-off or some turmoil or value comes roaring back, the more pure ones will have their shiny object moment and have their day in the sun. But as Rachel mentioned, what goes up usually comes down. And I think that now would be the time maybe to look at a more pure one, given that betas had this long run. But most people, again, look in the past and they keep buying the sort of watered-down value ETFs like VTV and IWD. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Shiny objects. Thematic ETFs. Let's talk about that for a second. We talked about pot already, but there's some other ones. Well, just to put it in perspective, twenty about $25 billion are in thematic-oriented ETFs, and there's about 120 or so of these products. They get a lot of attention uh, because of, as you mentioned, the shiny objects. So we now have six cannabis ETFs. We had one when the year started. They're all underperforming the broader market because... The, the stocks inside them have, have done poorly. We've got a whole range of video gaming-oriented ETFs. Uh, look at him. He's, 
I knew he was going to trash on the video game ETFs. I'm saying they exist. Listen, there's 350 large cap quality ETFs. Do we need a 351st, though? I'm not complaining that we have these products. I think what's great about it is, as, as Rachel talked about earlier, what is inside these portfolios is quite different. The definitions between a product like Nerd and ESPO and Gamer, they're performing quite different because they are quite different from what's inside it. So thematic is a great area to invest from the longer term. And you've got some mid-size and larger players that are that are playing within this space, no pun intended. And but what we are seeing is that how they interpret the theme can be quite different. And so when you have more, only one of them, then you just buy that product. But when you've got four or five or six of them, then the homework is needed. What's another thematic? Well, I product just I just throw a little bit of like cold water at, on the on the whole kind of um, thematic complex, if if I may. Um, but just because the, the assets have been relatively static this year, I mean, we did see this really exponential rise like for a couple of years and then over the last sort of 18 months or so it's kind of plateaued we've seen a little bit of a drop with the market a little bit of a rise as the market picked up but it's it's pretty steady with where we were this time last year and I think that's a little bit of a question mark really for, for kind of issuers that have been coming out with these products like how do you actually keep gaining assets has this reached a top for now like the the ideas are all there they're all you know good ideas and have a kind of truthiness to them in terms of like what's going to be going up in the future <laughs> yeah. but they're, they're not actually actually sort of like really bringing in um, assets in the way that they were. When you talk about that plateauing, I think that's interesting. Um, Robotics, to me, sticks out. That definitely got a haircut this year in assets because the performance uh, faltered. I think it had four or five billion. Now it's down to like one or two. And I think that's sort of what happens. They'll, They'll rise, they'll get X amount of dollars, and then half leaves. And so that's part of the sort of uh, topsy-turvy nature of uh, thematic ETFs. What they do, though, that there a couple things I think they're like advantage of is a you can understand them. Uh, the truthiness is definitely something you need to worry about and how they're designed. But advisors having conversation, as as uh, our guest uh, two weeks ago or a month ago called it, conversation alpha. An advisor can talk about a story with, and that's good for the advisor. So that may not even be a natural reason to buy it, but that's just a reality. So I think that conversations happening on these areas. A lot of times, they don't track stocks that are in the big indexes. It takes a lot for a big index to take in a new stock. So you can capture an area before. And the third thing is, we talk about XBI as the best performer in the decade. It's 100% more than IBB, which is the other biotech ETF that market cap weights. And a big reason is M&A pop. Um, if these things go to mid and small caps, a lot of times, and the marijuana's had this a couple times, they will own, just randomly own a small cap that gets bought. So you have a little M&A action in there, which I think is an underrated part of them. But that said, I, I do think they'll be niche. But remember, everybody's on and on and on about ESG. That has $13 billion. This has about 50 So I think 50 is pretty significant. But yeah, it's nowhere near, like, say, a smart beta with a trillion. Okay, let's, let's use that moment to transition to ESGs. ESG. Let me start because I'm so hot on this right now. Look, I've been in this a lot. I have found that ESG, we've always looked at the assets and like, why aren't they gaining assets? It's been a question. We've, but recently, I've looked at the, the actual stocks in the, in the ETF, and I've found something that's just stunning to me that just apparently nobody really knows about, which is there's a lot of stocks that don't make these funds that would shock people. I think Amazon, semi-shocker. And then that brings to the question is, how many people who are thinking of ESG are willing to forego the next Amazon, that's a 1,000% gain over 10 years in order to sort of do good. I think there's a lot of slacktivists or tourists who probably don't have the stomach to withstand what could be potential underperformance. Another example is Berkshire Hathaway. Warren Buffett has just said, I'm not filling out your questionnaires. His board is not independent. 
but he says independent boards aren't really independent either. He makes some good points, and Berkshire is in less ESG ETFs than Exxon. And who doesn't want Warren Buffett in their portfolio? These exclusions bring up really interesting questions about the metrics used and what's in, what's out. And I think there's a lot to sort out here. And you, you know, they could outperform, but they could also underperform. And you have to be ready. Take that, Todd. Well, the same screens that are being done now for ESG are being the same approach to it is being done for value-oriented ETFs, you know, VTV value. Uh, in undervalued securities or growth-oriented ones, you don't get the full market and you are likely to underperform or outperform based on what's inside the portfolio. So yes, we knew that what's inside these ETFs is not the broader market. But what I think is appealing about some of the newer products that have come to market, that we don't have that long a track record, you mentioned uh, the DWS product, USSG, uh, SUSL, which is another iShares uh, product that's tracking the same MSCI index. S&PE, which is uh, another product that's tracking the S&P index, they're more inclusionary. And so companies make it into the portfolio as opposed to companies being excluded from the portfolio. They're more sector diversified, and they cost 9, 10, 11 basis points. So they're close to the overall market from an index perspective. They're going to be niche uh, initially, the same way that some of these thematic-oriented ones are. I think we can't get our too far ahead of it as to how much money is going to go in, but we are going to see more money going in as yeah, people care about this. Are you supposed to use this in place of your whole equity portion of your portfolio? Well, I think over time that there are people who are doing that versus Then again, the it's S&P so 500. crucial to understand what you don't own. If you use it as an overlay then what's the point? Because then you already own those other stocks anyway. And right. also, I think the difference between sort of ESG and a, and a factor-focused fund is that the factor-focused fund is, is looking at something that's very measurable. You know, it's looking at, say, kind of, you know, whether a, a stock is undervalued versus the rest of the market, and it's looking at sort of price-to-earnings or something like this. You know, these, these ESG funds are, are largely sort of based on ratings, and the ratings of these companies is actually pretty oblique. Like, it's quite hard to find out exactly what criteria and exactly how certain kind of, like, factors and in, in how a company is managed or what it does rolls up to this overall rating and how that then gets incorporated into an index. Believe me, I've tried to figure out it's quite complicated. So I I think there is kind of like a few question marks there about kind of how some sort of companies sort of like end up being sort of very low rated and others end up being very high rated. And then how that's then kind of like packaged all together. Like certainly like, you know, this year we've seen kind of huge amounts of inflows into ESG funds, but it is really kind of like those those big funds that have kind of like marketing powerhouses behind them, you know, your BlackRock, your DWSs that really can kind of like throw money at making sure these funds are in the right place. And let's not forget that those two funds, which are now I think the second and the third biggest ESG funds in, in ETFs in the in the US, are both backed by a, I think it's a Finnish pension fund. So we're not talking about a huge amount of kind of retail or diversified money coming in. It's still fairly sort of sporadic investment in these products. Next, worries about ETFs. Are those going to go away? So. You know, I'm I'm in research, and a lot of the analysts I work with, they'll kind of like, you know, kind of complain a little bit about earnings season because it's like the same thing every quarter. Oh, earnings, they get busier, they got to work a little longer. And I'm like, myth busting is my earnings because about once a quarter, <laughs> someone says something, and I and they everybody forwards me the email. I'm like, okay, let me write our sort of response. The last one was Michael Burry. This was a huge one, and everybody thinks this guy's great, right? This is the guy Christian Bale portrayed in The Big Short. He even said they're the next CDO, which was just really damning and. That was one of the worst I've heard in a while, but um, I wouldn't expect this to slow down. I think, to a degree, there's some that are going to take be, be taken more seriously, like Michael Burry, um, and there's some that I think you need to just say, okay, this is a guy from 
this active shop who's like one time there was a guy who called him weapons of mass destruction. And I, I looked at who the source of the article it was a guy underperforming his index by 35%. And I'm like, all right, come on. Like this guy probably shouldn't be the guy quoted on this. That said, I, you know, like I said, I do think ETFs, you got to, there's a couple things that are more legitimate that could be brought up less, but the, the illegitimate ones seem to get brought up more. They're distorting fundamentals. Everybody's going to, they're weak hands. The opposite seems to be true. So Look, people are going to worry. I think they're not perfect. You have to decide what you would buy the stocks and bonds yourself, use a mutual fund or use an ETF, and then take it from there. Rachel? Yeah, I mean, I think this is kind of a sign that the ETF industry is being such a success, really. You know, it's past $4.2 trillion in assets. And I think active managers, you know, obviously see that and, and are, are certainly, you know, to some extent threatened by that. So this, I mean, this is a, the fact that people question kind of the, the basis of the industry, I think is actually a positive thing because the more people talk about this, the more opportunities there are to educate about what are the real and what are the, the potentially not real risks out there. So I kind of view sort of all these question marks um, as, as being a positive. And I, I think, you know, any sort of attempt to kind of, you know, dial those back would be bad for the industry. It's good to have people that are asking those questions, holding the industry to account and making people educate in a more articulate and more thorough manner to actually make sure that everyone's questions are addressed. Wow, Rachel had a cup of sunshine this morning (laughs) because I love the opportunity to educate and have a rational conversation, but ETFs distorting the market and weapons of mass destruction, those are not things that normally get said. Macy's is one of the worst performing stocks this year. It's in the S&P 500. It's down something like 40%. You've got semiconductor stocks that are, have doubled this year, also in the same S&P 500 index. If money is driving and distorting the price of these stocks, then I, God help these companies if they were not part of the S&P 500 index and they weren't being propped up by, by having ownership within IVV and VOO. The market's not being distorted by the ETFs. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in, in a downturn. I mean, because there is this whole kind of, and some people would say this is a myth about this idea that you know ETFs haven't been tested yet. Now, I think the jury's a little bit out on that. We have definitely seen tests. However, until we see something of the kind of magnitude of, of Lehman, no one is going to be satisfied that the test was big enough for the, when the assets have been large enough. So I think it's going to be interesting if we do see a correction to see how the market does, because it might put some of those concerns to bed or show that there are market structure issues that still need to be fixed post-August 24th, 2015. Yeah, I would agree with that. I also think that mutual funds in a downturn, it's going to get interesting. Yeah. The bond funds have gone into more illiquid stuff to outperform. That's going to be tough to sell. And I also think just generally, people who are in active mutual funds were likely put there by their broker. And people who bought an ETF or an index fund bought it themselves. And I think they're going to have a little more loyalty. And that's why you tend to see them not panic in a downturn. So far, we've seen them largely hang in. Um, in fact, they'll take in money net. So I do think that matters. The loyalty and the commitment to that low-cost, long-term story, I think, is stronger. I think active mutual funds, you could see some really wild things happen. If all the boomers who are already you know, getting up there in age, plus the market downturn, all try to sell their, what, $15 trillion of active mutual funds or a portion of it, that's a lot more selling than ETFs could ever drum up. Talking of uh, things closing, let's talk about ETF uh, closures as well as launches. What's left? A lot of closures this year. Death is a part of the a part of the industry. It's just death is part of life. Death is part of life. And <laughs> big, big words by look, Eric Balchunas. Um I salute it. I think it's good to get these um, non traded duds off the market because if you put a market order in overnight, it's possible you get hit at a, a bad price uh, in the morning. So I just clear them out. Except you know, admit defeat. Um, and there's a lot more. Cl- I think also the fee war that Todd mentioned earlier in this year has scared invest uh, issuers. 
made them think twice. I think the spaghetti bazooka or cannon that Ben Johnson from Morningstar Free is a great phrase. I think it's kind of turned more into a rifle. I think they are throwing spaghetti at the wall, but it's a little more targeted these days, a little more thoughtful. The launches just don't seem as as wild as they were. So I think it's just maturing industry. Well, a couple of things to add to that. One is that it used to be roughly three years before an ETF would have a chance and then see what would happen. Uh, and we're seeing that sped up to some extent. There's ETFs that have launched in 2019 that are already will be closed by the end of 2019. That's a very short shelf life that's out there. But we did we ran some data using what we rate at CFRA, and there's 175 ETFs that are more than three years old that have less than $50 million in assets under management. Which is... Sort of the threshold, right? Which is tends to be the ballpark for where it is. You know, fifty or a hundred million. You, you know, it tends to be the threshold for where it is. So these are products that have had a chance for success that have not been able to do so. There's some lineups that are out there that probably would shock people that that still have uh, a place on the shelf. So there could be a culling. I think yeah. there's going to be a, an ongoing culling, and, and as asset managers decide what are their priorities for 2020, and, and as we get to it, the, the new uh, active non-transparent ETFs that are coming out, if you, if you offer those or you plan to offer those and you offer some of these products that have no money in it, you want to put your, your bang where your buck is. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a positive, right? You know, if we start to see less froth in the industry, I mean, to, to Eric's point, it's like a, it's kind of a pruning of, of the industry um, more than kind of like a sign of failure. But we were seeing some, you know, pretty kind of crazy launches out there. Some of them are still in, in the market. And I think, you know, any kind of like sort of reckoning where we see some of those slightly more out there products sort of curbed, it, it has got to be kind of a positive in terms of the long term outlook for ETFs and making sure that people are in sensible, smart investment strategies rather than fads. Okay. Speed round. Bitcoin 2020. We're going to see an ETF? Uh, um, James Seyfert on my team has upped his odds to 50%. I'm, I'd be in that ballpark because the SEC just approved an interval fund that uses futures. I think if they do approve one, they might start with a futures ETF. Uh, Dahlia Blast came up with some interesting comments. That said, every time I've given odds, it hasn't happened. So um, You, you know. didn't give them. You give James. Todd. I feel like I come every time and I get asked this question and my answer still is the SEC doesn't seem comfortable I don't think they're going to get any more comfortable about fraud. So, no, I don't think it's going to happen in 2020. Rachel? Zero. Wow. 50 to zero. Well, that's good. We'll see what happens. We'll have have Todd back if it happens. Okay. The ant race. What is that? I'm going to throw this to Rachel. She's the source of the term, and I love. I think it's going to happen. It's a good name. Thanks, guys. I don't know uh, what it is. The name. We're, is we're making it the happen. Name, the name or we're the making success of the happen. product. The name. Okay. The name, Not yeah. the success. That's a whole different story. Rachel, what is it? Active non-transparent. Um, so active non-transparent or ants. As I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get this to be a thing um, because it's like spiders and vipers. You know, um, it. it it is basically kind of the idea that you can sell an exchange traded fund that doesn't disclose its holdings every day. So instead of kind of the daily transparency that we sort of see from most ETFs that are currently out there, you would have kind of more of a mutual fund-esque disclosure. Now, there are a few models out there that would kind of give different ways of doing that. Typically, they fall into kind of like the proxy model, which we've just seen um, approved for Fidelity, T-Row, um, Blue Tractor, and Atixis, um, or the kind of indicative value model that Presidian has been pushing. We obviously had Dan McCabe on yep. a few months ago now to kind of talk about that. So those are kind of like the, the, the models that are out there. Uh, we are expecting to see the first funds launch in Q1 of next year. And the big question from my perspective is, is really kind of like whether we see investors kind of moving into these products. Um, I think there are some philosophical questions about whether investors really want to 
go into active now um, if they're not there already and kind of how sort of putting in an ETF wrapper will make it more or less appealing. So that's a nice transition, Todd. There's some regulatory stuff on the horizon here in 2020. How do you think that's going to implicate? Uh, what are the implications for that stuff? Well, I, we believe that we're going to see success. I think the we've we've got the approvals so far. We think we're going to make it's going to be easier to launch an ETF than it ever was beforehand with the ETF rule going into effect at the end of this year. And we think that firms like Fidelity, like T. Rowe Price, that have strong brands in active management that already are a relatively low-cost provider, that have strong track records, they're going to be able to have some success with these products. Uh, you know, Fidelity gathered $3 billion of money into their ETFs in 2019 without their flagship active equity strategies being available. We think they're going to have that and then some going forward. Right, but that fidelity number A, it's only three billion. B, those a lot of those are the cheap sector ones, low cost. Which brings me to the three reasons ants will struggle. Number one, active transparent already exists, been around for ten years, and all through those ten years, they now have managed to scrape up 0.4 percent of total ETF assets. It's it's like nothing. Nearly every dime of flows goes to ETFs charging 20 basis points or less. These are all going to be above that important line. Number three, a trillion of outflows from active equity mutual funds over the past few years alone. Those are really hard, almost insurmountable. And then there's the anecdotal. When I talk to advisors, they'll say, yeah, look, um, I know some managers will outperform each year. Some funds will do better. But the problem is I don't know ahead of time who that will be. And if I chase ones that already did, a lot of times they won't persist and then I'll lose more because I bought at the top. And so the persistence has become such a damning mental state uh, for the advisors. So whether the hard data matches that mental mindset from advisors, and I, like I said, there'll probably be a couple hits, but I see largely a lot of struggle. And we've seen big issuers come to the ETF industry and get humbled. Well, we've also seen big issuers come to the ETF market and use their scale to their advantage because, to be able to do that. But like a JP Morgan and a Goldman, it's largely because they followed the Vanguard model to a degree. If you're coming in with ants at 50 basis points since your value or growth active fund, I, that's a whole different story. Who's been successful with that? That's the thing. We haven't seen that. So your 10 years of history, the providers that were out there a long time ago in the active equity space are not providers that are household names that have- Okay, time out for that. Who's a household name? You mean the brands? Not the people, the the, brands. Right, the brands. So the the brands that are out there. So you're not following your manager into it. You're going to get the tax efficiency benefits- I've gone to many events that are held by asset managers that the primary audience are existing mutual fund investors, and they need to be educated about ETFs. The, the other thing you have is demographics. A lot of the big mutual fund investors are boomers who are, if anything, selling uh, to give to millennials who are not mutual fund investors. So there's that other larger Drain, you know, headwind on this whole situation. Although you potentially, got- if you label something as an ETF, those those millennials might be interested in it, whether it's active or passive. That's a good point. I think it's going to be a distribution kind of challenge. Really, it's like it's it's going to be in, like the the marketing tactic is going to be to emphasize how the strategies are different and how the content is superior to the, to the passive. I would imagine, but I think in terms of the actual success, it's going to be can you get that into the hands of investors uh, and present it in a way where it can compete alongside mutual funds which they may already own um, or. ETFs so they may be a bit skeptical. Well, about. I think that's the challenge, if I can real quickly, on it, is the distribution. So will brokerage platforms allow these to go sit side by side with the mutual funds right. alternatives? Uh, I hope that they will. I think that they're going to understand that this is a different product 
from the same asset manager that they were familiar with. But if they're not allowed on these brokerage platforms, then they're going to be the same thing like the low salt uh, LSLT product that's giving away money and still can't get money coming in the door. Um, I had a real quick one for for you guys, and you can weigh in too, Joel, if you want. Um, Oh, I get to talk now? Yeah. (laughs) Um, If we look at the top ETFs by flows over the past decade, uh, this decade it was IVV and VU at number one and two. In the outs, outs, it was uh, SPY and EFA. And in the 90s, it was SPY and QQQ. But largely, the top five and ten lists haven't quite been the same. They've been different each decade. What's an ETF or two that you think could just end up being one of the leaders of the next decade? So I think AGG. Uh, so this is iShares uh, core bond ETF. Uh, I mentioned earlier, bond ETFs are gaining market share. We think they're going to continue to gain market share. And you're going to see roughly at some point more of the asset allocation that you'd have with the equity and fixed income. Everybody owns the ag, whether you hate the ag or not. People still own the ag. It's from iShares and it's low cost. And I think it's going to be extremely popular in the next decade. I, I tend to chime in with what I'm not going to pick a favorite because I, I shouldn't play favorites. But I would point out that I mean, if you look at kind of like the the top flow intakes this year, BND, GOVT, TLT, IEF, and MBB and ADG just outside, so all kind of like big bond funds that have been kind of taking in significant flows. Uh, yeah, to my point earlier, I really do think like in the next decade is going to be about fixed income uh, and people using that more and more. So I think some of those broad um, bond funds will be great for buy and hold investors. And I think you kind of also got to not count out some of the ones that traders are going to use. If we do see kind of institutional and tactical traders kind of using um, ETFs more in place of kind of swaps and uh, options and other kind of derivative type functions, then I think some of those products have the potential to end up with a lot of assets, you know, just because people are using them so frequently. And I'll chime in with a couple. Um, you could see a well, BBUS. You're just going to like skip me there? Oh, sorry. Jeez. 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 Sorry. You know, you, you were on your phone. I, I, okay. I know. He's I know that do, he's uh, got to okay. do his research. Okay. he doesn't have tickers <laughs> no. at the top of his head like we do. <laughs> I, so I actually think, um, you know, I know you're cool on the ESG thing. That I think the between the ETFs and the millennials and being able to actually like put your money in things you believe in. I don't know if it's going to have like it's, it might not take on ag. I totally think you're right. It's probably one out there. But the fact that there are like low carbon ETFs that track the benchmarks that they're up against and have a fraction of the carbon footprint at a moment in time when we we think that you know millennials are going to probably invest some money into causes that they believe in i think that something like that like the what what's the MSCI the iShares Spy MSCI X. SpyX i think that's an interesting play i don't think it's going to be like a number one thing but i think if it's like you're you're passionate about climate change you actually have an ability to like invest in something that might feel good. That's a good out-of-the-box answer. Um, it's inspired. I yeah. like it. I don't That's agree what with happens it, when you give inspired. me a chance to talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going with BYOA. I think you're going to have this vertical integration and like six big companies start to control most of America's money. And I think you could see SCHX, the Schwab large cap, sort of rise above and really start to challenge the iShares and vanguards of the world. I also think you could see something like a BTAL, which is the anti-beta it's possible the whole next decade is just rough, and things that are supposed to go up when the market goes down go up. Maybe some alternatives. Uh, you could have gold up there. I will bet you we'll come back here in 10 years, and I will have <laughs> the sushi lunch of my dreams that BTAL will not be within the top 10 
of of the list. I will pay, I will pay for that lunch. Okay. Yeah, I don't think so either. I'm saying something that does the opposite of the market. I'm not or SH. Something could be a deep value. Who knows? Value, by the way, is just due for a long, long stretch. We'll see. I'm just saying something out of the box that's um, you know not what you'd expect, not the cheap beta typical fare. And on that note, we have another year, decade, century ahead. Seeing him in we'll, ten years we'll is just an interesting visual. I, I can't get out of that in my head. It's like I have no hair now. I, what, I, what is so hard say, about he's that? He's gonna have hair. It's gonna be my glorious. hair will be no. all gray. Yeah. Swinging twenties. Yeah. Todd, Rachel, <laughs> thanks for joining us on Trillions. Thank thanks you. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. You can find Rachel at Rachel Evans underscore NY. And you can find Todd Rosenbluth at Todd CFRA. Trillions is produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.